Our speaker this evening is award-winning journalist um, and author Colin Woodard, a native of Maine. He is a graduate of Tufts University and the University of Chicago. Currently, he is state and national affairs writer at the Portland Press-Herald and Maine Sunday Telegram. His work has appeared in dozens of publications and covered a wide range of issues. He's received the Jane Bagley Lehman Award for Public Advocacy and the George Polk Award. In 2014, the Washington Post named him one of the best state capital reporters in America, and the Maine Press Association named him Journalist of the Year. His third book, The Republic of Pirates, was a New York Times bestseller and the basis for the NBC series Crossbones with John Malkovich. His fourth book, American Nations, a history of the 11 rival regional cultures of North America, received the 2012 Maine Literary Award for Nonfiction. Tonight, Woodard will discuss his most recent book, American Character, a history of the epic struggle between individual liberty and the common good. Please join me in welcoming him. Well, thank you all very much for coming and to the Boston Athenaeum for having me as a um, champion of and practitioner of history and the humanities. It's a honor and a privilege to speak here in these halls, so thank you again. Um, tonight, I am going to speak uh, indeed about how I came to write American Character and a bit about what the book aims to accomplish and its premises and then a touch about its conclusions, although if you want, we can flesh into that further in the Q&A. Um, this book really grows out of the previous one, American Nations. How many of you have actually read American Nations, the previous book? A fair number of you, a third or so. Well, let me just sketch out a few things about it because it's helpful in uh, understanding it. And these things are part of the component in the new book. Um, the central argument of American Nations was that uh, you can't understand American history or the American identity or indeed our current political cleavages which are geographic even as they are ideological unless you realize this one key fact that there's never been one America but rather several Americas that we're not a unitary nation-state we're a federation of several stateless nations, regional cultures that have always had their own characteristics, most tied back to the differences between the Euro-American colonies that took shape on the eastern and southwestern rims of what's now the United States in the 17th and early 18th centuries. Now, the original clusters of North American colonies were settled by people from distinct regions of the British Isles and from France and the Netherlands and Spain, each with their own religious, political, and ethnographic characteristics. For generations, these discrete Euro-American cultures developed in remarkable isolation from one another, consolidating their own cherished principles and fundamental values and expanding across the eastern half of the continent in nearly exclusive settlement bands. Now, some of these regional cultures championed individualism, others utopian social reform. Some believed themselves to be guided by divine purpose, others championed freedom of conscience and inquiry. Some embraced an explicit Anglo-Protestant identity, I'm looking at you Yankees, others ethnic and religious pluralism. Some valued equality and broad democratic participation in politics, others deference to a traditional aristocratic order modeled on the slave states of classical antiquity. Now, they laid down the cultural um, uh, DNA of their respective regions. Um, 
and, call, as they, and as they colonized those respective regions, they brought the institutions and the values and the uh, unspoken assumptions and symbols and narratives of who we are and the legal framework and social aspects of things. In short, all of the aspects that make up culture. So my argument is that there's never been one America, but rather several Americas. And there are, today, 11 of them. Those are at the county-level resolution of the current state of things. But they're all following settlement bans. Now, how do they do this? What am I talking about that settlement followed and created this map? What is this map actually mapping? Well, let me explain one or two of the nations just briefly so you can follow along with the concept. We might as well start with uh, Yankeedom as our primary example, since we are here indeed in Boston, epicenter and beachhead of Yankeedom, which of course started, uh, you know, you had the, the, the Pilgrim uh, prologue, but really with the Winthrop fleet arriving here in Massachusetts Bay, Calvinists creating a applied religious utopia, we're going to have a light on the hill, right? We're going to uh, work together to create what we consider a more perfect society, and we're going to do it through our shared collective institutions. We also think as Calvinists that man is rather uh, filled with avarice, and if you don't keep control on their base instincts, that things will run amok. And so the individual has had to, you had to watch out for the individual rising up to become a threat to the community's freedom. Therein will lie the, the tyranny is one of you out there, you know, rising up and, uh, and becoming an aristocrat or something that endangers the community. So there's a lot of emphasis on individual self-denial for the common good. Well, of course, the Massachusetts Bay Colony ended up uh, expanding and annexing the old colony in Plymouth. And then the, uh, you know, the royalist... Uh, West Country dominated settlements in the province of Maine, and then the uh, neighboring Connecticut and other colonies. And then, when the Dutch were defeated in the uh, in New Netherland, and the new province of New York was being created, there was a bit of a conflict because uh, many of you may recall from your history books and middle school books and so on that. When you looked at a map of the colonies, not only did you have the colonies as we think of them, but each of them, or many of them, had strips as wide as their colony claimed all the way across the continent to wherever the Pacific Ocean was. Of course, they didn't know where the Pacific Ocean was, but they were going to claim a strip as wide as their colony all the way out there. And this presented a problem when the province of New York was created because Massachusetts, the Commonwealth, had a Commonwealthian width strip going right through the middle of upstate New York, comprising millions of acres. And they said, hey, the Dutch are defeated. We want our claim of sovereignty over that vast strip of this territory. And this was a bit of a problem. And they worked out a compromise, which went, no, we're going to give sovereignty to the province of New York. But by way of compensation, the Commonwealth will receive land title to all of this land. So for a vast strip of upstate New York comprising millions of acres, the Commonwealth set out to Massachusetts-based land companies to go settle it. And this was done often by their Congregational or Presbyterian or even later Unitarian uh, clerics leading their flock, large people from uh, key families going together from one community and going out and redeploying a new New England style community with its town green and its publicly financed school and its meeting house. The New England way and model being replicated across a vast strip of upstate New York, which is why so many communities in that particular strip happen to look like towns in New England. Fast forward a little further to when the Ohio Territory is being created and guess what? 
Connecticut pointed out that there was a Connecticut-wide strip that they claimed, the Western Reserve of Connecticut, which is now known as the Western Reserve of Ohio, which is that dark blue bit you see up there in Ohio along the shores of Lake Erie. And indeed, the same compromise was made. Ohio got sovereignty, but Connecticut-based land companies and Connecticuters went and colonized that whole area of the Western Reserve, which is why if you look at your Rand McNally Atlas, you'll see all these Connecticut place names, because those are the names of the towns that the original settlers came from to those respective towns, and they deployed the New England way across the Western Reserve, but not other parts of Ohio. And then you go forward another generation when the Michigan Territory is being created, and most of the initial settlers and the first territorial governors and members of the Territorial Assembly and the people who gathered together to write Michigan's initial state constitutions came from the Western Reserve of Ohio, the Yankees settled upstate of New York, or New England itself, and ditto for those other Great Lakes states you see up there, Minnesota and Wisconsin, and so on. So the institutions and assumptions spread out over that area through about the 1830s when you first start getting significant migration from third-party places. It was a fait accompli. The rest of us would discover once going there that these things were all sort of laid down. By contrast, take a look at that area in the uh, lighter red, Greater Appalachia. So this was settled uh, a little bit later, starting the 1730s, the beachhead actually being in the interior behind the Delaware Bay colonies and they were in south central Pennsylvania. And this was an area that was settled primarily by lowland Scots, people from the English marches, and especially the Scots-Irish from Ulster, coming in what were staggering numbers there. In the 1730s onward, the biggest flood of migration that had been seen, and they poured into south central Pennsylvania and then down the spine of the Appalachian Mountains, for sure, but also rafting down the Ohio to settle the lower tiers of Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, and on through the ocean arcs and down even into the Texas Hill Country in Oklahoma. And this was a very different culture, although also being from the British Isles, they were not Calvinists coming to create an applied religious utopia, but rather were coming from the war-torn borderlands of Britain, where government, whenever it happened to arrive, which was rather rarely, usually came in the, in the form of a bunch of guys on horses with lances coming to mow down your family. Nothing good comes from government. You must, in fact, protect your kith and kin yourself. It was ended up a warrior culture forming in a state of warfare and uh, anarchy where the the emphasis was always on the individual, individual's responsibility, individual freedom, and that even the creation of orderly and efficient government, the natural goal of the Yankee, is in itself seen as a threat to freedom. Freedom is about maximizing the individual's freedom because the upper level things will be tyranny. Very different approach to things, and a very different approaches to the question in that subtitle of the book of individual liberty versus the common good. And we could tell a story about the settlement drive of all of these various nations, and they all have different characteristics, but that gives you a sense of what we're actually mapping and some of the contrasts between them. So this profoundly affects many things including political behavior. The lines on this map that you're seeing right now can be seen in the county level results of any hotly contested election in our history. And it looks often like this. You can see up there, you can see Yankee Dome, you can see the Western Reserve popping out against the rest of Ohio. You can see the left coast out there on the other side of the Cascade and coastal mountain ranges. You can see a monolith in the Dixie nations of the Deep South and Tidewater and Greater Appalachia. 
And no, I haven't been messing with the colors. Red really is Republican and blue really is Democrat because this isn't a recent election. This is the 1916 contest between Woodrow Wilson and Charles Hughes. <laughs> now, trying to understand American development and political history using parties is a fool's errand in historical terms because parties come and go. After all, where are the Whigs and the Federalists today? But also, the parties just invert upon themselves. They are, they're ephemeral. In, uh, in that the Republicans and Democrats have, in fact, changed constituencies and positions over the past half century. There's the 2008 map of John McCain versus Barack Obama. As you can see, there's been a complete swapping of things. You can't understand things following parties. The parties come and go, but whenever we have a contentious issue, the fissures, the, 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 the contest breaks down along these tectonic plates that I've already showed you. Notice here in 2008, there's a couple differences here from the map you saw before for 1916. For one thing, suddenly you're seeing El Norte pop out there. And for the other, there's not quite a monochrome block there in the uh, deep south and in uh, tidewater. What's up with that? Well, one of the things that changed between 1916 and 2008 is that Hispanics and African Americans could exercise the franchise. So you're seeing majority opinions suppressed by a caste system in El Norte during the more of the occupation period popping up on the 2008 map that wasn't there in 1916. And then most of those blue counties you're seeing are African American majority counties in the deep south and tidewater because sadly, uh, political uh, allegiances and race are still highly correlated in those regions of the country. But as you can see, it has a rather dramatic effect on things. So American Nations was about history, but the lesson for today at the end of the book, the one that would come up in my talks, was an explanation for how we're deadlocked. I was looking at historical forces. Most of American nations is talking about explaining our history and who we are and our experiences through the fact that we have these regional fractures. But it did reach to the present and said, yes, uh, we're deadlocked. And we're deadlocked because of the uh, current configuration of the regional coalitions, because our political story since the 1820s has always been about the formation and battle of two political blocks of one sort or another. The founding fathers, because uh, the regional cultures didn't trust one another, created not a presidential system and not a parliamentary system, but one that required a great deal of compromise so that each region could checkmate the other because they didn't trust each other and hadn't expected to be part of one country. And so you end up with two power blocks. And since the 1820s or 1830s, our history has been a struggle between one led by the Deep South and another coalition led by Yankeedom. And the participants in those two coalitions have shifted over time, back and, back and forth, different partners involved, but with each of those being the core of one or the other of the blocks. And there have been times when one or the other has been able to command a supermajority of regions, enough so to control the levers of federal power in Washington, which currently mean you need a majority in the Electoral College, you need a majority in the House, and you need a filibuster-proof Senate majority. If you have those three things, well, you can do stuff, almost like a prime minister could in a parliamentary system. So the problem is today and in recent decades, neither of the current political formations, they usually aren't sorted by party, by the way, 
only recently have the parties become so cleanly ideologically sorted. So they would be regional coalitions, usually transpartisan, that used to create these blocks that could govern for decades at a time. Not so today. The two blocks, which now really are a blue block and a red block, neither of them commands enough umph to control those levers of federal power on their own. In the current configuration of things, the blue block, the democratic block around Yankeedom is Yankeedom and its only two reliable partners, New Netherland and Left Coast. And on contrasting them is the red block led by the Deep South since the Southern strategy went through. Uh, and its only reliable partners now are Greater Appalachia and Far West. It used to be Tidewater, but now that's a swing region since about 2008 as it's transformed. And so you do the math, you overlay the Electoral College and the Senate and the House districts, and neither of those configurations of geography give you a majority to do anything. And so our politics in recent decades has been characterized by these two coalitions straining to try to convince the swing regions, the Midlands being the most important of them, but trying to convince them or peel off coalition partners to try to build a supermajority. And you know what? Neither one has been able to do it. Neither program has the ability to deliver you a regional supermajority to be able to govern. So we sit on a knife's edge with the federal government rather paralyzed to the point where the world's last existing superpower, the Congress, cannot authorize somebody to sign a check at the Treasury to pay the bills that the same Congress has already voted to accrue. That's a pretty extreme circumstance for the nation, the world's last superpower to arrive in. So you want to get out of that. And what's happened throughout history to break such political deadlocks is one political formation or the other manages to command a supermajority by articulating a set of policies that win you over all of those regions. So how would you do that? Well, that was kind of the question left there at the end of American Nations. And the new book, American Character, tries to take on that mission and, that, uh, and deliver some answers. Well, save the republic, all for just the price of a hardcover. At the outset, though, to do this, you have to identify what is the key conflict point that one would analyze. Well, the American conversation has always been about freedom. That's not true of all other countries. In many countries, it's order or security, or in New Zealand, it's fairness. But indeed, in America, it's been about freedom. A republic that created a, uh, was, was aspiring towards a more universal notion of freedom and are trying to perfect it. And the dialogue and discussion is largely about that. The problem is there's a conflict because different people and indeed different dominant regional uh, paradigms have a different definition of freedom. Is freedom ultimately that individual freedom, individual sovereignty, as the greater Appalachian people would tend to argue? Or is, the, is, maintaining, is freedom about maintaining and cultivating a free community? Community freedom maintained, individual freedom maximized, those things and all kinds of policy fronts are actually in conflict. They end up being a tension between the two. So what do you do? How do you play that out? Well, it's helpful. I said that Democratic and Republican, and indeed words like liberal and conservative, are change over time and are very unhelpful in analytical terms. But this spectrum I'm talking about of individual freedom versus community freedom is an extremely useful way to look at things. Now, at the center of this spectrum, 
ask yourself the question, when individual liberty and the common good come into conflict, on which side should you err? And you start, maybe on different issues, people would have different opinions, but you start diverging along the spectrum as you answer that question. Now, if you start erring towards the common good, first you enter sort of a communitarian space. And if you keep on going in that direction further and further, you will eventually arrive at social democracy, which I think has been forgotten in the current generation, but social democracy is where you have a vigorous free enterprise capitalist system, which is harnessed via taxation to support a robust set of social and civic infrastructure to theoretically improve and engineer better solutions for your society. If you keep going down that spectrum further, though, you arrive at socialism, where the state is actually taking over the mines and the factories, and in an orthodox socialist state, is actually would be taking over every restaurant and every shop and so on. I, I was uh, based in Eastern Europe at the end of communism and stayed on as a journalist for the collapse and saw some of the effects of that. And theoretically, if you kept on going that way, some theorists would say that you would enter the nirvana of communism where the state would simply wither away because we had cultivated a new race of new men who are capable of living in, uh, in, a, in a common and collective way without the coercion of the state. But you know what? History shows us that doesn't ever happen because instead what happens is the keepers of the collective good and the guardians start looking upon dissenting and unorthodox individual behavior as the primary threat to the common good. And that ends up at a point eventually where you can end up with people committing thought crimes and where you're required to surrender as individuals to the superego of the keeper of the common good, be it the party or the fatherland. And indeed, you wound up with Orwell and Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union. Oh, whoa, you know. That was pretty bad. We better not go do that, right? Running off into extreme collectivism is a terrible thing. Thank you for alerting me. But, hey, you go in the other direction, and the same thing happens as you start diverting from the center. Because if you head along the individual liberty side of things on this graph, you enter what Americans tend to call a libertarian space, although a better word would be liberal in that sort of classical liberalism sense of John Locke and uh, the second part of the word neoliberalism, but we'll use libertarian to avoid confusion. And if you keep going down into that path, into the argument that less taxes and less government and less regulation will in fact give you more freedom, you start entering into uh, areas where the government's ability or willingness to act as a referee starts disappearing, and inequality in fact grows as the gains asymmetrically accrue, not just to the most able, but also to the most rapacious perhaps, or simply those who were born into a vast inheritance from the previous generation's cycle of struggle. The space for everyone else to have a fair shake starts disappearing, happens over and over in history. And then the contraction of the leveling mechanisms of the, of the state, progressive taxation, quality public schools and universities, parks and libraries, starts disappearing. And history has shown time and time again that the consummate rise of ideolog ideologies start coming up to justify the chasm. You start ending up in uh, ideologies where, indeed, the rich deserve more freedom because they're more virtuous. And in fact, that the poor deserve less because of moral and possibly genetic failings of different sorts. And if you keep going further down that spectrum, you end up into the radical libertarian thought of Ayn Rand, objectivism, where altruism and civic-mindedness are themselves explicitly condemned as evil. 
And if you kept on going, the logical extreme would be you'd end up eventually and theoretically in anarchy or in narco-capitalism if you're an optimist, where the government vanishes and might makes right. But again, you never actually get there because what happens, history has shown time and time again, as you push way down on the extremes of that spectrum, is that a few families maximize their freedom and take it away from everyone else, and you have an oligarchy. Now, this has happened many times in history. It happened in medieval Hungary, where the noble class got into a struggle with the king and removed many of the king's powers and then used that new freedom they had to re-enslave and re-insurf the entire Hungarian peasantry and refused to contribute anything to the defense of the state or even to this creation of a standing army, which is the reason that when the Ottomans showed up on their southern borders, Hungary collapsed and capitulated and ended up in the centuries of the Ottoman yoke that they will all tell you about. That's not a very successful way of uh, sustaining a state. But you don't have to go that far back in history. You can go right to the late 20th century in Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala, where the 10 families or the 14 families or the 8 families have succeeded in maximizing their freedom and have captured all of the land, all of the means of production, the government, the courts, and the army, and crush anyone who gets in their way. And guess what? Those states ended up being so weak that when the narcotics trafficking oligarchy showed up, they started pushing that oligarchy aside. But suffice to say, they're some of the most dangerous and unpleasant places to live. It's another kind of tyranny. Well, oh dear, if there's tyranny in both directions, logically, somewhere, if it running extremely in both directions gets to tyranny, somewhere in the middle is a theoretical balance point where these two essential aspects of freedom, individual liberty and the sustenance and sustaining of a free community, are in balance. That that would be the moment where you have a maximally free society in a liberal democratic mold, right? A liberal democracy is about trying to have the ideal of universal individual freedom. But ah, that's a tricky bit, because lest we forget at our own peril that there is nothing natural about a liberal democracy. Nothing at all. It's an extraordinary human accomplishment. It took us eons to start creating this idea and four centuries of rather halting experimentation since people like John Locke and the Enlightenment thinkers first started coming up with it. Think about it, in the 5,000 years that our species has had advanced civilizations, despotism and autocracy have been the norm. In medieval thought, think of somebody like John of Salisbury. The humans were considered to be in a collective, a collective organism where the individual is unimportant, right? John of Salisbury wrote that, that society is a, great is, a great, uh, is a great creature with the king as the head and the soldiers were one arm and the tax collector was the other and the serfs were the feet moving it around and the soul was the priestly caste guiding it, but that everyone had requirements to be harmonious with one another. That was the central model. The idea of individual freedom was not even on the radar screen. Even those, those democracies we celebrate, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, were not liberal democracies aspiring to universal individual freedom, but rather places where a small set of people had the privilege, the liberty of practicing democracy, and subjugation and slavery was the natural lot of the many. So mass individual freedom is an unusual thing, and it requires the creation of a government of sufficient strength to ensure that, in our case, our American competition can remain free and fair. 
you got to have it not so strong that it becomes oppressive, but strong enough to ensure that the economic sphere remains competitive, that you don't have monopolies form that start taking away the actual free market and distorting it for all the participants, including the consumer. It also has to be able to police the social sphere to avoid intergenerational monopoly of opportunity and thus the liberty in the social sphere because, you know, even if we all theoretically started the great American competition on equal footing, over time, over generations, the winners' families would accrue more and more inherited advantages, and that starts creeping away and taking away those for others without various leveling mechanisms. You need the libraries and the healthcare systems and the public education and colleges and parks and transport and the taxes to do it well because those sustain and maintain the possibility of newly born people born without the same advantages having a chance to enter that individual competition that we all prize as Americans and have some chance of being able to realize some of their potential. You also need the cultivation of a Republican citizenry, right? The stuff that the founding fathers and the theorists and de Tocqueville all talked about, right? The habits of the heart. You need a republic because we're relying on the citizenry ultimately to make the key decisions. You need a citizenry that's capable of critical thinking and is knowledgeable about affairs around them and has an informed and responsible and reasoned commitment to liberal values in a free society and the legitimacy of the defeated opposition's opinions and so on and so forth. Those are all incredible civilizational accomplishments. You know, the, the liberal democracy is not a mature forest. It's this garden you have to cultivate and weed and maintain. So that's why it's so hard. For us as a species, we haven't done it for very long, but also it's about trying to follow a shifting 50-yard line in different uh, situations and pressures to order to maintain the possibility and the, the ideal of having a universally free society. So we need balance. So what is the United States' balance point. Well, it's easy to detect with other liberal democracies what the balance point would be, like Japan or those in Western Europe, because most of those are essentially unitary nation states with one or one dominant culture that sets the tone. The consensus on the big issues, what freedom means and what the balance should be and the relationship between church and state and all of that has been decided. And different societies choose different balance points. In Japan, a liberal democracy, the balance point emphasizes harmony and the individual's responsibility to the group in a way that works for them, but Americans in general will be quite uncomfortable with. In most of Western Europe, after World War II, they created social democracies. And again, that's something that Americans haven't been entirely comfortable with, but for many West European societies has been their balance point. But what is ours? Why don't we know what our balance point is? Well, the reason is, is because we have that balkanization. We're not one, but these multiple regional cultures and each has a very different idea of where the correct balance point is and struggle about it. In order to figure it out, you would have to look back at our history and look at 11 variables over time to figure out what our experience has been, where you had things where both the outcomes for liberal democracy were successful, but also that you had supermajority political support. Those are those moments that give you an idea of where the path forward lies. 
Now, we've been in dangerous realms before. If you look through our history, we've gone to one level or another and one extreme. On a regional level, the Puritans displayed the dangers of ignoring individual liberty, giving us the Salem witch trials and, of course, the, the atmosphere which inspired Nathaniel Hawthorne to write the Scarlet Letter. On the libertarian individualism side, the antebellum Deep South shows how single-minded pursuit of individual liberty uh, can take you astray into a universe where the oligarchy has in fact maximized its liberty and is literally defending the liberty to enslave. Now look at that, even the Confederate currency, you had the mix, you had the, the, the classic, uh, uh, classical feminine uh, uh, liberty um, imposed along with slaves in the field, and you even had George Washington up there, founder of the Republic, as a reminder of the fact that slaveholding was held by even the people who led us on this great expedition towards freedom. A very different look at things. But on the federal level, too, we've been down there. There's, of course, the Gilded Age, you know, where you had a situation where the balance over to laissez-faire went so far that the economy was, monopolies were taking it over and the possibility of free competition disappeared. Different trusts, the, or the, uh, the meat trusts and the packing trusts and the railroads working together and Standard Oil, whoever you want, were actually deciding things like, Iowa, you shall not have a pig growing industry because the only way you can get your pigs to, uh, to the slaughterhouses is via our railway and we will charge all of you Iowans $500 per carload to get to market, but the Nebraskans, who we've decided shall have the, the, uh, the industry, we'll do it for $1. And those kind of distortions which were affecting and damaging competition of all sorts and not serving the consumer, but also on the social ground, you of course, as, uh, as those uh, things were accreting and, and power was going unchecked, you had the capture of the government itself, including the Senate and the famous uh, Puck cartoon of the masters of the Senate. But indeed, it was true that many senators at a time when they weren't popularly elected, but elected through state legislatures, were in fact agents and employees of the trusts themselves, who they often seemed to represent more than the states that they uh, had been appointed from. So those are bad things, but we've also had a firewall against collective tyranny. You know, our, there, we, we've rarely ended up in a situation where we've gone too far in that direction. And the reason is that all of our regional cultures, even the more communitarian-oriented ones like Yankeedom, are very individualistic, much more so than our West European peers. We're shifted over among uh, liberal democracies to the individualism side, which has probably given us a lot of dynamism and has, explains a lot of things about the American experiment. But it also means that any efforts to push over into the social democratic realm through our history have been pushed back, even though that's kind of the, the middle spot for a lot of Western Europe. You know, you had uh, under FDR during the uh, early days of the New Deal, he was throwing mud against the wall, you know, Great Depression, trying to figure out what to do, you know, see what sticks. And some of the things he threw that had, even though he was incredibly popular and there was an existential crisis for the country, some of the things he did had strong blowback from multiple regions. And they were especially things where the government was actually stepping in social democratic style to become a direct actor like in the National uh, Industrial Recovery Act, where you're actually going to go and try to manage prices of you know, rubber bands and profit margins of those things and step down to pl do industrial planning in the economy, but also if the government was going to go in and actually employ workers directly to go build stuff, you had blowback from that. All kinds of it. So 
uh, also LBJ in the Great Society, at the moments where he was trying to further the greater New Deal order, the space that starts in 1933 and runs all the way through Truman and Eisenhower and on through Kennedy and Johnson, and really doesn't end until 72 after Nixon's first term, that whole space, he was trying to push it further along where not only will we have a successful and affluent society, but we will improve it and make it a great society. That we, the government, have the technocratic expertise and knowledge. We have the best and brightest to actually go down and engineer to remove poverty, to, to fight a war on poverty and a war on the Viet Cong. Don't worry. You know, we know what to do. We will take your blighted neighborhood and knock it down and build these wonderful concrete towers. Everything will turn out great. And things didn't turn out great. In all kinds of circumstances, the knowledge was not as great as they thought. And also, people were discovering the distrust of, of the government actually zooming down and trying to do those things from on high. Again, in ways that in a social democracy would happen, but those were pushed back. And, you know, he, by the 66 midterms, he destroyed the entire coalition with that kind of overreach that shifted outside of the Americans' comfort zone. Now, of course, our current election cycle has been rather fascinating on this curve. You have all kinds of things going on. One of them is the incredible rise of an avowed social democrat to contest the nomination for one of our two uh, parties against a very powerful uh, candidate. This is the current state of the Democratic primary race at the county level. Green is Sanders, uh, yellow is Clinton. You can again see American nation's contours even happening within the Democratic electorate here in 2016. But the interesting thing is that you have a social democrat. One of the things I find fascinating is a lot of his supporters are relatively young, are millennials. And my take on what I think is going on is that, you know, I'm a generation Xer, and for myself and baby boomers and the generations before who lived through the Cold War, we remember the rhetoric, right? The Cold War rhetoric was that social democracy is the beginning of a terrible slide that will lead to socialism and communism and Stalinism and all of those terrible people living in chains and have nuclear weapons that are going to go hit us. We need to duck and cover under our desks. That's like a bad thing. Even if you didn't believe that, that was the rhetoric. Socialism was kind of a dangerous third rail sort of word. Well, the millennials don't remember the Cold War. They don't remember all that rhetoric. Instead, the Republicans have done themselves rather a bit of a boomerang disservice because they tried to deploy that language of Cold War socialism against Barack Obama. Now, Barack Obama on that spectrum is kind of like a Teddy Roosevelt progressive Republican or maybe an Eisenhower New, Demo you know, New Deal consensus Republican. He's kind of in the center there. So millennials who didn't have this previous assumptions you know, and uh, associations with the word socialism, they see socialism. And they, they look at it and say, well, that's not that scary. And I think it's actually for that generation kind of, you know, taking away the electric charge from that word. And it will be interesting to see as that generation grows older if that firewall on the social democratic side and the collectivist end of that axis might move a little bit as that generation gets older. But perhaps more... Uh, troubling and, to me, surprising is the other aspect, which is the rise of Donald Trump. Now, nobody really saw that coming, that he would be that successful. But in retrospect, if you're using that individualism, collectivism spectrum, here's an interesting fact. Of all the Republican candidates, every single one of them, even when there was 15 other people competing against Donald Trump, every one of them is on the individualistic, laissez-faire side of Trump. 
They're all basically saying one variation or another of, yes, if we had less taxes and less regulation, it would free, you know, human individual ambition and everything would be great, except Trump, who's not said that. He hasn't promised to cut anything. He's not talking about cutting taxes or programs. In fact, he's talking about free trade having damaged his constituency, even though free trade is championed uh, by the Republican Party for some time. Indeed, he's against immigration, which the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is not happy about because he says it depresses wages at the lower end of the spectrum. He's talking about going after the bankers who got away with 2008. So he's speaking to a constituency, the sort of lower middle class and working class who bore the brunt of globalization and the changes, that nobody from any political party has been speaking to their economic interests for two generations, Right? The neoliberal triangulation under Clinton dropped the, uh, the economic ball for that set of people, and the Republicans came and said, hey, we got you on social issues, because in general, that constituency was rather conservative. But guess what? If somebody actually did show up and argue your economic issues, turns out that trumped social issues by quite a bit, and Trump has been using them to do that trumping, and that is the massive pool of warm water which is fueling the Trumpian hurricane. But there's a downside because Trump is also, as everyone has noticed, especially in the past month, not playing by the liberal democratic playbook. Because the constituency he's arguing for is not the American people, it's a subset. And Europeans will recognize it immediately. This is the, the textbook template of the far-right nationalist in Europe which we're not used to here, so it doesn't quite compute. It doesn't fit our categories. But the far-right nationalists in Europe, which I covered and lived in for a long time, are defending a certain subset of people, the Volk, the good Hungarians, the good Austrians, the good Poles, against those other traitorous people, right? Which in Europe are the Jews and the Gypsies and the dirty foreigners. And Trump is doing the same thing, except he's going after the Muslim Americans and the Mexicans and those awful journalists in the press pit and whoever made fun of him on Twitter last week. To those people, constitutional protections and legal process need not apply. The strong man will take, take, take steps in it. Beat them up, I'll pay your legal bills, right? You will remove your, you know, you'll have to uh, ban uh, Muslims from entering the country based on their religion. That's a rather dangerous thing to have arriving into the, uh, into the United States. It's not that that's never happened before, but it's never been the nominee of a major party uh, articulating those and capturing the nomination. So uh, a lot of people said, as I've been doing media interviews in the past couple of weeks since the book came out, you know, this book is so timely. How did you know? And I said, well... I didn't, you know. I, I was thinking, okay, individualism versus the common good. You know, I'm not worried because whenever this book comes out, I know that the big issues everyone will be talking about front and center will boil down to that. Because whether you're talking about gun control or abortion or whether or not the FBI should open up Apple's cell phone and about surveillance and what, you know, flat taxes, whatever you want, it's basically an argument about individual freedom versus community freedom interpretations. But what I never saw coming is the root foundational thing about preserving a liberal democracy being the goal. I didn't think that in the 2016 cycle, suddenly that would be like a hot and relevant topic. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged that, uh, in fact, his constituency is not large enough to go to, to, to uh, capture the general election, but it is a rather worrying development in American civics. So... Um, 
The book does, in fact, go on to identify the sweet spot. And usually when I'm giving talks, I uh, tell people that I'm not actually going to share that sweet spot with them. But with you, I will, uh, I will give you a, a little bit of a synopsis. Um, because uh, in the end, if you go through history, which I have in the book, and you try to identify those balance points, to try to go through our experiences, um, you come away with the notion that the supermajority idea, the most broad, you know, social democracy doesn't fly in aggregate in our country, but what does is a sort of American way that says, yes, we're Americans. We like the idea that there's going, that the people are going to go out and try to pursue happiness in a free and fair competition of individuals and ideas and the outputs and institutions they create out there on the stage. And that that, in aggregate, will create a healthy and, uh, and dynamic and successful society. And indeed, in many respects, it has. You know, we are, we were in the past especially an engine for all kinds of ideas on the world stage. But here's the key thing. The American rhetoric also wants that competition to be free and fair. It doesn't want there to be cheating and to have uh, uh, certain people getting away with things uh, that, and others being locked out of it. And what protects the freedom of that competition is, in fact, government. Government protects our freedom, first of all, from external threats from other countries through armies and stuff, but also plays out those things I talked about before, about making sure that the economic competition is freely played, that you don't have unfair competitive things and, and cheating and price fixing and things that will distort and damage and close up the possibility of innovations and dynamism and that struggle to go forward. And indeed, all of those things I mentioned on the social realm uh, are required as well. We've been there before, right? We've been at stages where the government was primarily focused on maintaining the fairness in the, in the economy through regulation and the fairness in the society through investments that have major returns for society as a whole. You know, basic science, the Apollo program, building the interstate highways, having that civic and uh, infrastructure, land-grant universities, sea-grant universities, having, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, structures that allow that kind of leveling. And the moment where most of that happened was in the core middle of that Greater New Deal era where you had a bipartisan consensus and a regional supermajority that over three decades from about the end of World War II until 1965 anyway, and in a way in a long tail, you had a bipartisan consensus to do exactly that. Call it national liberalism. It's not social democracy. It's not in the laissez-faire realm. It's kind of in between. And in that zone was a sweet spot where America had widespread uh, prosperity, where you had a rising middle class. There were bad things about it, too. You would not want to replicate it. But in the core, it worked and pulled a supermajority. It was popular in the far west. It had enormous popularity in the Midlands. You had uh, popularity in greater Appalachia. You had a supermajority, nine or ten regional cultures, basically gather around that set of ideals that draw enough of us together to successfully govern the country. And that's developed in great detail in the book, but uh, that's a little synopsis of it in short. Well, I thank you all very much for having me. Thank you.